This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Tour to Lovecraft, The Destinations. Locking into Scenarios. And the back half of my Florida, California book haul. Ken, do you know anything about kitties? I might. But do you know about magical kitties? I know everything. Everything about Magical Kitties Save the Day, a new RPG for gamers of all ages. But you know, young ones in particular. A perfect intro to the hobby. You mean perfect? I do not. Like the title says, you're Magical Kitties. Every Magical Kitty has a human. Every human has a problem. In Magical Kitties Save the Day, you use your magical powers to solve problems and... Save the day! You all live in a hometown that's filled with foes like witches, aliens, and hyper-intelligent raccoons. They make human problems worse, so the kitties go on adventures to stop them and help the humans. The super simple but elegant rule system puts the emphasis on storytelling and puts the dice in the players' hands, not the GM's. And it supports a setting and characters that players are familiar with and love from the start. When you open the box for Magical Kitties Save the Day, sitting right on top is a copy of Magical Kitties and the Big Adventure. A play graphic novel adventure. Within moments of opening it, kiddos can create their magical kitty and go on an amazing adventure that also teaches them how to play the game. Run Magical Kitty Save the Day for kids as young as six years old. And for everyone else who loves kitties. A great game for kids to start running on their own with plenty of tools and guidance for first-time GM. If you've been looking for a way to introduce your friends and family to role-playing games, Magical Kitty Save the Day is the perfect game to do it. Do you mean perfect? I also do not. Pick up your copy at atlas-games.com. You are cute. You are cunning. You are fierce. You are magical kitties, and it's time to save the day. It's time once more for the covert self-promotion that uh, girds this entire podcast to move into the overt self-promotion of Among My Many Hats which, of course, is the segment where we talk about our new exciting things that are available for you, the listener, uh, to pick up. And since I'm the one throwing this segment, surely uh, your deductive reasoning has kicked in. You know that this is a Ken project that we're going to talk about, and specifically one that I'm sure is near and dear to everyone's hearts because it's a follow-up to one of Ken's absolute classics. This is Tour de Lovecraft, The Destinations, which is a series of essays about... Uh, the, the works of H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, you may know uh, the previous one, Tour de Lovecraft, The Tales, which is a systematic romp uh, through all of his uh, stories. And this time, Ken, you've gone on an even more geographical trip, as the subtitle The Destinations would indicate, because you're talking about Lovecraftian places. Now, some of these began in Weird Tales magazine, is that right? Yeah. Stephen Siegel, who was at that time the nonfiction editor of Weird Tales, read Tour de Lovecraft in its original iteration in the live journal way back in the day and said, would you like to do a series like that for Weird Tales? And I said, yes. Uh, Spoiler. (laughs) Would you like to be in Weird Tales? Would you like to be in Weird Mm. Tales? Would you like to be on the masthead of Weird Tales listed as a contributing editor? Yeah, I think I'd like that. So um, I did. And between us, we came up with the idea of looking at Lovecraftian locations because 
no one, I think, had looked at them not in the sense of, was Arkham actually Salem? But in the more interesting sense, or at least less looked at sense of what's Arkham doing, right? What is Arkham, not where is Arkham? And asking that same question about all of the Lovecraftian locations turned out to be sort of a a weird combination, I guess my sweet spot, between areas that have been very much gone over, the lengthy Marblehead versus Gloucester argument for Kingsport or whatever else, compared to things that literally no one had really talked about, or they talked about at best glancingly in uh, the criticism on a given specific story. But there had never been sort of an overwhelming look at a lot of these locations as locations at all. And that was sort of my my bit, is that, you know, Lovecraft is so very famously setting-centric as a writer, given that his plot is subordinate to incident and his characters, well, the less said about them, the better. That was certainly Lovecraft's idea. So you're left with setting, right? That's the other part of the uh, Aristotelian tripos. And that, of course, is where he really, you know, pun intended, sank his roots, was developing these settings as organic outgrowths of the landscape. And his attention to setting has not really been followed or met or responded to really by Lovecraftian scholarship uh, writ large, although individual Lovecraftians have done really great work on sort of individual bits and aspects of it. But I think looking at the whole question of Lovecraft as a setting guy, it, it was kind of a fallow field, if not an entirely virgin one, I guess. Right. And the idea behind what is a Lovecraftian destination is very different in its scope from one essay to the next. So, for mm-hmm. example, your approach to uh, Dunwich, that's a, a place that features really in one story. And so in that essay, you're sort of getting into almost sort of a Northrop Fry exploration of the nature of that story as a demonic upending of the story of the birth of Christ. And in other cases, you are looking at such locations, you know, giant locations like the moon or <laughs> even the woods, which, of course, is not one specific destination, but rather a creepy destination that you can find encroaching anywhere where eldritch foggy beings lurk. So what uh, went into your uh, selection process as to which destinations uh, would wind up in your table of contents? I mean, some of the more obvious, you know, you have to do Arkham, Innsmouth, Dunwich, Kingsport. Those are standards. Some of them were things that I sort of figured out that some stories touched on and didn't touch on anything else. So a lot of it was just go through all of Lovecraft stories and say, where are they set? And so that's where you get, you know, Oklahoma, which is the setting of two Lovecraft stories or Egypt, which is really the setting of one, although it very much informs uh, the whole mythos, but also, you know, where do you put a story like the tree? Is it set in Sicily? Not really. Is it set on, you know, in Arcadia, sort of, but it's really set in antiquity. And and Lovecraft, of course, has a much more pregnant relationship to ancient Greece and Rome than he does to any given spot of ancient Greece or Rome. So that becomes the setting. And it was really just a matter of going through all the stories and saying, where is the actual setting of the story? And then there are some sort of hyper settings like uh, the moon, as you point out, or hyperspace or deep time or apocalypse that are concepts, but are basically treated in many ways in the same way that Lovecraft treats his settings. So a Lovecraft story set in the apocalypse 
if you look at the story uh near Othotep, for example, it's more clearly set in the the apocalypse than it is in Providence or some other I mean the city is literally nameless in the story. So where is it set? Well, it's set at the end of everything. And so that's the real setting. And so it really was just, you know, going through all the stories, figuring out what needed to be in there. I knew that I wanted to begin in the woods and end in Providence uh, because I'm, you know, following Dante's model, basically. Uh, what what better model for the tour through hell and uh, purgatory, the cosmology in general? And in other things sort of came about, you know, as we're doing the Kickstarter it's, well, we need another location. What can you think of? And so that's where, for example, upstate came from the notion that, oh, let's, let's break out Lovecraft's uh, sort of Catskill stories and, and see what we can do with those. And does that say something, you know, about Lovecraft and the rural in general? And so, uh, as I suggested earlier, the nature of each place or time slash condition <laughs> dictates the content of the essay. So it's not uh, and I think that provides an interesting variety that allows you to sit down and read them in a bunch rather than, you know, one essay at a time over time right. because they are sufficiently different from one another. But some of them read kind of like a cross between a gazetteer and a concordance. For example, when you're talking about the moon, you go through the different Lovecraftian stories and see the different ones that refer to the moon and in what way and what role does it take. So how do, process-wise, uh, how do you go about is it literally a search through the entire combined text of Lovecraft for the word moon and lunar and so forth? Yeah. I mean, for the moon, absolutely. It was definitely search out every mention of the moon, every mention of lunar, every mention that might turn out to be the moon. Because, again, there's a bit in it where I have a table that says, what is the phase of the moon in all the Lovecraft stories? In a hundred years, no one has ever asked that question. And Given, you know, that we all know that at least, you know, full moons is werewolf time. Is there a symbolic connection? There's obviously a symbolic connection within individual stories. But what do we know about Lovecraft's entire use of the moon? And how can we build that? And so, similarly with Dreamland, I wanted to make sure I'd got every mention of dreams and nightmares, not just the sort of conventionally Dreamland stories. So, a lot of it was, yeah, just going to, you know, Donovan Lux's amazing hplovecraft.com site and, you know, searching every word of Lovecraft for the specific key. With other things, it was more obvious, you know, where we needed to go. And with some things, I did have the advantage of uh, former work. So, my work on the underground was very much buttressed by an earlier work, uh, I think by a guy named Pearsall, who did a, a long essay on Lovecraftian underground stuff. And I you know, give him a shout out in the text. And it's, uh, you know, a lot of it is just building what you can about two thirds of the way through the moon essay. I found an essay by a different author about Lovecraft's use of the moon. And I was briefly terrified that I'd done all that work for nothing, but he was solely talking about the moon as an astronomical entity. So that's where a lot of the hardcore astronomy get got fed into that essay because I already had this uh, pre-existing scholarship to, to draw from, but a lot of it was just, Look up every time Lovecraft says swamp, marsh, or mire, and uh, inform the essay on the swamp with it. And Miskatonic University gets its own section separate from your Arkham essay. And uh, this one seems to kind of focus on the uh, disjuncture between what the administration of Miskatonic claims its security measures against the Eldritch are versus what actually happens in reality. Yeah, a lot of that is because Miskatonic and and. This is not only Miskatonic, 
all of Lovecraft's spaces are sort of double spaces, as Robert Waugh points out. But Miskatonic is very much a doubled space because it is, at the same time, it's the place where, you know, uh, good old Dr. Armitage keeps the Necronomicon under lock and key and nobody gets to look at it. But it's also the place where literally everyone has read the Necronomicon. And both of those work in the same story, even in, in some cases. And so the portrait of Miskatonic University specifically, because Lovecraft is using it in a story driving way over and over and over again, it builds this, this uh, contrast or this um, tension that I think becomes part of what the symbol represents, especially as he gets into a later story like Thing at the Doorstep or Dreams in the Witch House, where he's actually playing with that tension, the, you know, literal tension between Gilman studying hyperspace and Gilman walking into hyperspace and the response of the faculty to that is by that time, Lovecraft is in on his own bit and, uh, and plays it up. So Miskatonic is, is one of the places where that sort of doubling of Lovecraftian symbols is really, really clear. And so, uh, amplifying or, or signposting that tension is sort of the job of that essay. So is there a, a setting that you started out thinking, oh, this is going to be Thrin Gruel. I'm not going to be able to come up with anything and, and surprised yourself with, either an angle or just the the depth of material about it? I think the closest to that was the South, which was one of the things that I added because of the Kickstarter. It was not in my original plan. It certainly wasn't one of the original Weird Tales essays. And I thought, well, we've got Medusa's Coil. We've got a third of Call of Cthulhu. I guess we can say the South is location. And so much of that turned out to be about what Lovecraft thought of the South. And so it became more about his travel writing and about his sort of uh, ideological experience of the South, if you can put it that way. And then about two thirds of the way through it. And again, this is not my observation. Joshi has made this observation. Many people have that Charleston, South Carolina is sort of his rehearsal for uh, Kadath in mountains of madness. But the po- point where I figure, Oh, there's nothing Souther than Antarctica. This is all the South to him. And some of that was new. Some of that was just, you know, synthesized by me for the first time. And then the way that it reflected my previous sort of categorization of of Lovecraft's upstate New York uh, as the abject rural, which is what he sort of brings to perfection in the Dunwich Horror, and that the South becomes the abject rural for the whole country in a way, because Lovecraft, you know, for all of his love of Charleston is still a, a Yankee. And still considers the South a bunch of uh, hicks and losers. So that that notion, uh, again, maybe that duality, because he admires its culture while mocking it as being a artificial place, that, you know, sort of showed up as I was writing that essay in a way that, you know, I pretty much knew what I was going to say about Innsmouth. I was just going to say what um, uh, Robert M. Price said about Innsmouth. I was just going to say it for 10 pages. <laughs> so, so the South really sort of surprised me with, how that came together and became sort of a, a single thought as opposed to a, a, a conjuries of ideas that, that fall under the same geographical expression. So this is available March 22nd from Atomic Overmind Press. That is the street date. Although if you want it in PDF, you can go to the Atomic Overmind Press website and order it uh, right up and get the PDF, you know, right now. Well, uh, once I've told you uh, where to order it, it's clearly the end of this segment, but I think we've got another one coming up.
Dracula is not a novel. We know this. It's the after-action report of a failed British intelligence attempt... To recruit a vampire, yeah, yeah, we've been through all this. And the Dracula dossier director's handbook has more secrets, more dangers, more mysteries... For players and directors to explore together, we did a year's worth of ads about it. But it doesn't have Varna. It doesn't have the Ring of Dracula either, or 13th Age-style icons, or bibliomancy. Or a Hand of Glory, or Red Mercury, or hard-won advice and actual play reports. If only someone could gather up all that material that you and Gareth wrote after the fact. Someone has. You made Gar do it, didn't you? We've assembled. Gar has assembled. The cuttings from the dossier have been assembled into a 50-page PDF. Available free with a special offer from the Pelgrane store. Just buy a print copy of the Director's Handbook standalone. Or the Dracula Dossier Core Bundle, the Director's Handbook and Dracula Unredacted in print. Or the Dracula Dossier Starter Kit Bundle, the Knight's Black Agent's Core Book, the Director's Handbook, and Dracula Unredacted in print. Get 25% off any of those print bundles, plus the PDF versions and the cuttings from the Dossier PDF, entirely free with the code VAMP2021. And don't worry, original Kickstarter backers. The Cuttings PDF will mystically appear in your Pelgrain store bookshelves without further expenditure. Do nothing, Kickstarter backers. All others use code VAMP2021 for plenty of savings and lots of cuttings. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into... Oh, come on, guys. Come on, come on. Everyone, come on. Seriously. <laughs> stop stop rattling the dice. Stop thumping those miniatures. Jiminy Christmas. Peter Frampton is here. He's come alive just for you. Will you, will you come back into the gaming hut, Robin? Today's uh, gaming hut, once we get the players assembled and paying attention, centers on the question, what to do as a player when you're having trouble locking into a scenario. And uh, despite my hilarious opening bit, it's not so much what to do as a player when you're just feeling distracted and goofy, but specifically, I assume... Yeah, the answer to that is put down the phone. Put down your phone. Pay some damn attention, people. Take two minutes. But yeah, what what about when the scenario is not... Is it when the scenario is not grabbing you, when the GM is not doing a good job communicating when any of these I, things? I think it's when you're not sure what to do. When you're not sure what to do, right. So everybody's having a, else is coming up with things for their characters to do, and you're like, what am I supposed to do in this situation? So this implies a certain sort of scenario, something where you are presented with a situation and clearly something is meant to emerge or that you've been, you know, sort of more sandboxy than mission style. Mm -hmm. And so if you are going, I'm just not sure what I'm supposed to do next, we're going to provide a little checklist of thoughts for you to start to approach what action you could take that would be fun and enjoyable and contribute to the story. Mm -hmm. So the first question I think you should ask yourself about a scenario is, what's the game here, right? The, the, the activity has been obviously somewhat muted. It's not go down to uh, this cavern and kill the wizard there, because that's a very clear mission. You mm -hmm. know yep. what to do. And uh, I think there are other examples, which you can get to later in the segment, where you know maybe the thought of what you're supposed to do has not been uh, enabled that much by the GM. But you've been presented with something that's possibly a sort of a false lead into something. So it's like, um, you're just supposed to go to this area and uh, and secure it against the approach of enemy troops. Or you're supposed to investigate this spatial anomaly. Or uh, you have promised to uh, 
all spend the night in a haunted house for some reason. You know, that's the old classic. But once you're in those situations, you know you're kind of waiting for something else to come at you. And what do you do to lay the groundwork for that? And what do you do once it started? So, Ken, if you're in that, you know, beginning phase where, you know, you're waiting for the premise to show up, or perhaps you know that you're expected to just construct the premise, what goes through your mind as to how you're going to contribute as a player? I mean, you've got a, sort of a couple of different directions you can go. If it's literally you're in the haunted house and at some point ghosts are going to appear, then I think you go internal. You think, you know, maybe I can do a little role playing. What is my character scared of? And are they scared right now? And is there another character I can reach out to and make a connection with? over this, you know, impending, you know, crisis or horror or whatever is happening. And so going internal and looking at your character and saying, we haven't had a scene with, you know, Susan, uh, I'm going to go talk to Susan's character and, and build a little of that, you know, party uh, sinew. That's one option. The other option, if maybe other players are doing things and seem, as you say, to have, you know, locked in, help, you know, go to Susan and say, hey, um, I see that you're, assembling your electric pentacle uh my character you know uh served an apprenticeship at the Puthoff targ psychic institute uh, maybe i can help you with your pentacle and then you're at least following another character's lead and helping that player do something that they've figured out if you have a situation where you're expected to do something you know lay the ambush for the necromancer or whatever then a lot of that is just and then this may be because i'm a gm but what I will do is I will pump the GM for more information and uh, nuggets of intel. And, you know, you do that in the way that, and this is no secret because my players do it to me with shameless regularity. You figure the thing the GM already likes and is, you know, interested in and vibes to, and you just have your character ask about that. And you say, uh, if my players, for example, will say, is there anything in this that is possibly connected to, oh, I don't know, uh, interwar espionage? And it's like, yeah, all right, fine. You <laughs> is jerks. there a ley line nearby? Is there a ley line nearby? You know, whatever it is. But you, in theory, know what part of the GM's interest brain brought this scenario about. So try and, you know, get them to leave you some more seed corn. If you're, if you're not able to figure out what to pick up and, and start building, uh, the GM wants you to do that ask them to help you and ask them in a way where they, you know, can't help themselves, but, but spill that knowledge. And right. that and even if the GM is new to you mm -hmm. and you, you don't know how to give the, the teacher an apple or, you know, whether they prefer an apple or a nectarine or, or whatever, mm -hmm. the big answer to all of this is contained in, in your answer, which is when in doubt, get more information, uh, ask yourself, what don't we know? And then look at your character sheet and go, how can my character find out the thing we don't know. Because I think that's very often and surprisingly often the thing that characters, when they are stuck, the reason they're stuck is you don't know enough yet and you're expected to go look for a lever. Mm -hmm. That lever may be, you know, is there a notebook lying around? What happens when I search for this on the internet? Or it might be, you know, a, a literal thing. I, you know, I don't have a good, great feeling about this location. I'm going to go down in the basement and see what's down there. Well, even if the GM didn't plan to put something in the basement, there's going to be one by the time your character goes down the stairs. So right. don't leave the location entirely. That's very annoying. But find a new uh, spot in the location. Find the button to poke. And uh, you could even, you know, depending on how open your GM is to uh, player narrative, you can create a button. It's like, well, uh, there seems to be a 
disconnected alarm here on the wall. What you know, and look for something that fits your uh, character sheet. That brings us to another question, though: is sometimes you may suspect that your character, either it's one that you've created on an ongoing campaign, or uh, you may have been handed a pre-gen that was created without. Uh, enough thought to does everybody fit the scenario you may find that your character sheet and what's going on don't seem to really match right that you are on a stealth and diplomacy mission and you're the gladiator mm-hmm. and so the obvious thing to do is to pick an annoying fight but your question then is okay this doesn't seem to be designed for the stuff on my character sheet uh, maybe it is the case that I will have someone to fight with my gladiatorial skills uh, later. We may find ourselves in an arena where there's lots of wagering that could be set up for me. But in the meantime, what can I do, as you suggest, Ken, to support what other people are doing? Because it's rare that your entire character sheet will be completely irrelevant to proceedings. So think of, well, as a gladiator, what would I know about this old ruin? I, you know, I'm not a historian, but I know... Uh, arenas is this was this maybe built by the same guy that built my arena so find ways to sort of throw in and part of this i think is about being shy and kind of waiting for the gm to fully tip their hand uh, when uh, the best way to get them to do that is to you know throw them a ball and see what they do with it yeah start helping right the degree to which you interact with a scenario by and large and i'm not saying this is true at every table in every scenario but by and large it's down to you to do it. And the interface through which you do it is your character and more specifically, usually your character sheet. So, you know, worst case scenario, go down your list of skills, find one you haven't used in a while or one that you think is super apposite and start using it. See what happens. No GM is mad that you start making them, you know, color in the sides of the, of of the box or the story. That's literally why they're there. No one necessarily, as you say, wants you to, you know, try and premise break. Don't, you know, say, I'm going to just going to burn down the haunted house. Screw this waiting. That's boring and stupid. Right. And, and don't argue with the people who are doing things. And right. Get them yeah. to stop doing them. Yeah. That, yeah. Don't slow the process of other people engaging with the scenario, because if you had that good an idea, you'd be doing it right. You, you, and again, nine times out of 10, you don't necessarily need buy-in from anyone except the GM to start doing things. So you know, get that buy-in and then start doing things. The degree to which you are frozen out of the scenario versus checked out of the scenario versus that's not why you're even here to play. Uh, Many, many people obviously play to watch the story unfold and sometimes, you know, shoot a bad guy, but they're not, you know, as invested in puzzle solving or tactical combat or whatever else the game is about. They're really just, you know, this is like, you know, Netflix, but with their friends. And that is a different response. And if you've got Netflix, but with your friends, if that's your, you know, stance, well, what would you do if you could, you know, ask Netflix to to do something different, move the camera around, add a new actor, do whatever. Well, of course you do that. Think of that. I mean, you're just because you're having a spectator or watcher or audience or appreciative stance doesn't mean you can't you know, request something else or something more. And nine times out of 10, the GM is uh, happy to help you out because they want you to engage. And if you're the player who generally doesn't engage, you offering to engage will be met with glad cries, one hopes, and uh, enthusiastic response. And most recent games, somewhere on your character sheet, 
or somewheres in multiple places, there are character hooks. There are ideas of what your perspective is, uh, what you're trying to do. You may have a, a story hook that you're pursuing, the unique thing in 13th Age, the drives in uh, many gumshoe games. There's maybe something there that can tr uh, trigger your memory. So if you, uh, you know, kind of forgotten that your character has some weird uh, concern about their uh, heritage, you can go, oh, well, maybe this is the time when I find out what's in the in my blood. And it's not necessarily, uh, you know, so you can just use that as a trigger if there are things that are happening in the described situation that have yet to spark your imagination. You go, oh, well, I'm going to open the filing cabinets and see if there's uh, something leading to uh, evidence of my ancestry. And that doesn't have to be what happens. The GM can go, well, for some reason, you don't find anything about your family in this random filing cabinet, but you do find this floor plan to an alien building. And there you go. You've got something. So find on your character sheet the different reasons your character does something, which you probably established when you started and have forgotten about, or you were handed on a pregen and haven't really taken enough time to think about. And uh, while you're looking through your character sheet, you know, Keep an eye on the door. Know uh, your way out of the haunted house. Be thinking, you know, one step down the road to what you're going to do when the ghost does show up. You know, pre-planning is also planning. But as long as we're looking for doors, Robin, maybe we should look for the door out of the gaming hut and into this delightful advertisement. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Keep this podcast safely in Arkham and the heck away from Innsmouth alongside such beloved Patreon backers as Jeff Cars, Jean-Francois Parody, Matthew Preston, Tom Abella, and Bill Sirwan. So a couple of weeks ago, we started to delve into the vast pile of books, the double the number of usual books that Ken brought back from his most recent journey to Florida and California, 
but we only got halfway through them. And we don't have any, any time for further ado because there's still way more of them. So, Ken, <laughs> let's get started with The New Metropolis, New York City, 1840 to 1857 by Edward K. Spann. Yeah, I believe this is a fairly well-known classic of urban history, uh, or at least that's what it looked like from the back cover and everything. It came out in 1981, so it's, you know, at the beginning of sort of social history's conquest of the historical field. But uh, Spann, I think, takes... Not quite the Annals style, but there's a certain Annals spirit to it. And it's very much, you know, what is life like in New York City right before the Civil War? And this is, you know, just urban history. The fact that New York City is America's second best city does not mean it's not a great city, Robin. I don't want anyone to go out there thinking New York is bad. New York is just not great. So it certainly, though, was full of more than its share of culture and events and whatnot. And Edward K. Spann help sort of put a lot of that um, into human perspective. So, good book. Next, we come to another city on the other side of the American continent, Eternity Street, Violence and Justice in Frontier Los Angeles by John Mac Farager. So, uh, what era is Frontier Los Angeles? This is focusing on right after the gold rush and before the Civil War. It's the 1850s mostly. I think it goes into the 1870s by the very tail end of it, but most of it is about the 1850s and it's about Los Angeles, like San Francisco in that time had a vigilante committee, a vigilance committee, Los Angeles, like San Francisco in that time had a lot of gunfights, hence the violence and justice. And, you know, you don't think of LA as a cowboy city, but before they found the oil and before they made movies, that's what it was. It was a cowboy city. It uh, existed as a cattle stop. It was just Abilene by the beach. And uh, that's a big part of Los Angeles history. And it's cowboys. Who doesn't love that? So the notion of, of a book on that topic, it uh, filled a lot of different spots on my shelf. Still on a world of violence, but uh, on an entirely different far continent, we come to Ned Kelly, A Short Life by Ian Jones. And Ned Kelly, of course, the bandit who rebelled against the hated British in Australia and wore cool armor and was nonetheless, I believe, gunned down or captured and hung. The hated British did for him. That's my point. And I didn't have a book about him. And this seems to be sort of the standard post-hagiography of uh, Ned Kelly while still, I believe, um, understanding that he was a good bandit and the hated British were bad bandits. Now we come to The Imperial Cruise, A Secret History of Empire and War by James Bradley. This is one that's going to require, uh, can you to virtually uh, turn it around in your hand to tell us what it's all about? Because that title uh, doesn't give us much. It does not. The Imperial Cruise talks about a secret diplomatic mission to Asia, basically. Um, the notion being that in 1905, Secretary of War William Howard Taft, Alice Roosevelt, the uh Congressman Nicholas Longworth, who would eventually marry Alice Roosevelt, making her Alice Roosevelt Longworth, lots of other muckety mucks. They go out and they had a meeting with Japan and Japanese ambassadors. And the argument being that this was an attempt to divide the Pacific up into spheres of influence between America and Japan. And according to Bradley, in 1905, the Japanese were just shocked and appalled that anyone would divide anything up into spheres of influence. What? Imperialism? That's not what we do, ignoring the fact that they invaded China in the 1890s and conquered Taiwan. Sure, yeah, the Japanese, just simple babes in the woods, didn't understand imperialism. So Bradley is, as 
he often is sort of way out over his skis, but the actual details of the mission are interesting and understudied. And so one assumes that the basic, you know, what happened is going to be in there. And obviously, you know, William Howard Taft is a boss. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt, also a boss. So it's valuable, not just as history, but if you wanted to uh, Cthulhu it up, well, it's the Pacific Ocean. It's William Howard Taft. It's all manner of good stuff happening. So why not mine that for all it's worth? And the notion that it involves secret Cthulhu uh, cults is no less plausible than Bradley's thesis that America touched Japan and made it bad. Now, here's a title that does tell us what it is about. Church of Spies, The Pope's Secret War Against Hitler by Mark Riebling. Yeah, this is the sort of case for the defense. I think people are familiar with the book Hitler's Pope about Pius XII and his failure to speak out against the Holocaust and the argument that the history of anti-Semitism in the church meant that he didn't much mind the Holocaust so much as long as no one invaded Rome and, and burned down all the solid gold goodies. This is the case for the defense that actually Pius XII is working behind the scenes, running a major rat line to get uh, Jews out of occupied Europe and to bolster anti-Nazi action uh, in the Balkans and in France and elsewhere. And that the reason he doesn't speak out against the Holocaust is that he didn't want to attract the attention of uh, Heydrich and then later Himmler to this opposition. And that as long as the Catholic Church could operate basically without Gestapo scrutiny, he felt he could do more good than he could by speaking out, even though he really, really wanted to speak out. Now, as I say, it's the case for the defense. So the truth, maybe, you know, I guess Pius XII stands can argue back and forth. I think it's probably more likely that Riebling is correct than the Hitler's Pope guy is correct, but I certainly am not going to go out on a limb and say this book is a, a slam dunk, but what it is, is a lot of stuff about Vatican intelligence during World War II. So again, despite whether his thesis is right or not, it's probably on a bed of useful, gameable, fun, solid fact. Now, in a list with a lot of uh, solid subtitles, this very subtle subtitle is my favorite. Anthony Blunt, His Lives by Miranda Carter. Yeah, this is, um, I've been a big fan of, well, fan of Anthony Blunt is not the word because he's a horrible communist traitor, but I've been super interested in Anthony Blunt ever since I read uh, John Banville's novel, The Untouchable, which is basically a first person novel from the perspective of Anthony Blunt. And I love that novel. I, I, you know, obviously I knew that Blunt was one of the Cambridge Five, one of the KGB spies in the heart of the British establishment. And then that novel sort of opened up a lot of the other questions, such as, oh, he was also a major art historian and was the Queen's personal art dealer. And does this have anything to do with him being a KGB spy or are they different parts of his life that he compartmentalized? And I hope that Miranda Carter will help answer some of those questions. But even if not, again, you know, uh, the art world is... Maybe my second favorite shady underground world of knifing after the spy world. So the fact that Anthony Blunt has a foot in both uh, makes him a intriguing, nay, fascinating figure on any level. Now, a, a window may be closing on the ability of uh, writers in the West to uh, look into the KGB. But uh, for the moment, we have Battleground Berlin, CIA versus KGB in the Cold War by David E. Murphy. Sergei Kondrashev, and George Bailey. Yeah, this is not even the whole Cold War. This is the Cold War up to the Berlin Wall. So it's 45 through 61, basically. And that, of course, is one of the great 
you know, spy versus spy narratives in the mythology of both spy agencies. And the fact that we've got an American and a Russian author, I, I think, you know, uh, promises great things. And regardless, it may not quite be your fall of Delta Green source, but it'll, it can certainly inform either a 1950s Knights Black Agents game or as with so many things that happen in the spy world, their legacies can continue down to the present day and mess with you. So this is really a, you know, blow by blow, a uh, history of, of those operations. And it's one of the ones where the CIA does not come off entirely discredited and embarrassed. So good for the CIA. <laughs> well, let's, let's uh, take care of that part because next <laughs> up is facing the Phoenix, the CIA and the political defeat of the United States in Vietnam by Zalin Grant. Yeah. This is about, this is about the guy who was part of the original pacification effort, the anti-communist uh, counterinsurgency effort in South Vietnam, a guy named Tran Gok Chow. And he, was one of the people who said, don't fight this war as a conventional war, fight it as a counterinsurgency war. We do not need 200,000 American infantry. What we need is, you know, a bunch of special forces and basically carte blanche to murder people. And what happened was Chow gets sidelined by political rivals. And then the CIA goes and does what he wants to do anyway as Operation Phoenix. But by the time they do it, A, it's too late and B, they do it in the sort of classically CIA top-down fashion that even if it had worked, it wouldn't have worked. So the argument is that um, this is one of the many missed opportunities in the early part of the war to turn the war into a more sensible or at least less uh, god-awful strategy of um, small unit and more political warfare than uh, military warfare, which, of course, it turned out it didn't happen. And whether it was possible or not, this is another guy who is not super well-known. I didn't know him before I picked up the book. And I'm very much interested in that early part of the war before uh, 65, before escalation, and before it becomes America's war in Vietnam, as opposed to Vietnam's war in Vietnam. And that sort of high high watermark of the secret war before it became just another uh, colonial misadventure. As we've already seen in book titles, there's no war like a secret war. And that's uh, also the case for America's secret war inside the hidden worldwide struggle between America and its enemies by George Friedman. That's a broad topic. How does he narrow it down? Okay. First, let's narrow it down by saying it was written in 2004. <laughs> so um, it is a dawn of the war on terror book. Uh, George Friedman is the guy that runs uh, Stratfor, who you may know as the people who send newsletters about. So in 2004, you just saw this on the shelf and knew what it was. Exactly. No one had to explain anything to you. Stratfor sends newsletters around to business people and uh, government figures that purport to have an insider's intelligence community view of various foreign crises. And I think most people believe, and I think probably believe correctly, that Stratfor and George Friedman are sort of self-aggrandizing goofs who are just good at sifting open source material for lazy readers. Which again, that's what the CIA does. So I don't know why I'm bagging on George Friedman, but <laughs> open source material for lazy readers is one of my favorite series. It's the best. It's um, uh, it's so fun. But I really bought this as a document of the period, right? The sort of you know, even now, those of us who lived through it are having a hard time remembering what that felt like and and what we thought was going on. And I think it's it's a useful. I don't want to say corrective. Whatever the opposite of a corrective is, but. I think it's a, it's a good document and it will probably be just 
full to the brim with exciting acronyms and uh, cool phrases that don't actually mean anything and other uh, recyclable material for spy games or, or spy writing. So just from that level, it's good. And it was it was not a super expensive book because, as I say, it came out in 2004. So, And now we come to a, a classic historical figure, especially if you're interested in crime and mystery and detection. It's the Vidoc Dossier, the story of the world's first detective by Samuel Edwards. Just what it says on the tin. This is about uh, Vidoc, who began as a thief and became the head of the Surete, founding it in, uh, I think, 1811. So he sort of gets... Uh, upturned socially and one assumes politically by the revolution and finds himself suddenly running the Paris police force. He's a fascinating character. There's just nothing but lies, entertaining lies told about him. Uh, this book is, I think a relatively early biography of Vidoc. There may be a newer one, but I don't know if there's a better one um, because so much of the data, you know, obviously Vidoc didn't keep it. He didn't start out as a criminal and start keeping records all of a sudden. You know, what you can piece together or parse together from Vidoc's career may be a, a closed set, but either way, I didn't have a Vidoc book and now I do. Killer Colt, Murder, Disgrace, and the Making of an American Legend by Harold Schechter. Yeah, this is about a murder in 1841 in New York by a guy named John Colt, who is the brother of Samuel Revolver Colt. And he killed a guy named Sam Adams, who's a printer. Now, I know what you're going to say. You're going to say, killing a printer's not murder. But in 1841, it was. The, the book was out of register, man. Right. Anyone would have done it. Anyone would have done it. Well, it turns out that 1841 was a big time for popular press, popular media. This is when, you know, Edgar Allan Poe was getting his start writing hoaxes for the papers. There's a gigantic national scandal about this murder. And lots of people saying, is... Samuel Colt going to rescue his brother from prison with some sort of devil machine. And there were so many wonderful, crazy rumors about this case. And I'd known about it from various true crime ramblings before, but uh, Harold Schechter is one of the deans of true crime writing in America. And the fact that he's turned his gimlet eye and what do I want to say? Um, not creativity so much, but willingness to be inspired by the research to this material, well, I mean, this was as close to an insta-buy as you're going to get for me. I still think that that setting, and that's also why I picked up the Spawn book, by the way, that 1840s New York, uh, sort of the Gangs of New York era, is rife for some kind of activity going on. Robin, if you and I ever do our 19th century New York <laughs> role-playing game that no one will play. <laughs> yes, I, I, I wondered about whether we were going to plug that piece of vaporware. Right. Well, once more, uh, Into the Breach, here is our urban setting, is messed up Five Points era John Colt killing a guy. And I'm literally, I'm just touching the surface of this crazy case. So very, very glad to have the book. Next, we come to The Unmentionable Necheyev by Michael Pradin. Love the title. What's it about? It's a biography of a figure named Sergei Necheyev, who was a, well, depending on how you call him, this book says that he was one of the sort of intellectual godfathers of the Bolsheviks. He was thrown out of the International Working Men's Association for being a crazy jerk, which you you know, that's a job that you have to be thrown out of a left-wing uh, radical organization for being a crazy jerk, but he managed it. He was the author of a program called Catechism of the Revolutionary, and he was generally seen by Marx as just an embarrassing troublemaker. By Cunin sort of strung him along, and the book came out, I think, 
in the 60s, and it is very much also about sort of the brief period under Lenin when he was hailed as a hero, and then he was buried again as an unperson, and that's why he is the unmentionable Nechev. So a lot of this is about his later on reception by uh, the actually in power Bolshevik state and whether or not this basically not just a terrorist, but also kind of a horrible person is uh, good or bad. And that question is is part of the, what Michael Prodden is getting at. Uh, now we come to a, a duet of uh, similarly uh, themed titles, The Slow Burning Fuse, The Lost History of the British Anarchist by John Quayle. This is just what it says on the on the box. It is a history of the British anarchist movement, and the British anarchists don't get as much attention as the European ones. They set off relatively fewer bombs. They were cozy anarchists. Not zero bombs, but yeah, cozy anarchists. It was mostly locked room anarchism, and because they were mostly thrown into locked rooms. And so the other thing that they get tangled up with is the Irish revolutionary movement, and Quayle is saying that they had a bigger ideology, that they were part of the anarchist mainstream, and that they are not about Irish independence, except insofar as anarchists believe that there shouldn't be states of any kind. And it's a, it, it's an era that obviously I'm interested in. It covers the late Victorian Edwardian period. And it's uh, about the anarchists who are pretty interesting fellas in and of themselves. And, uh, you know, a whole book about them. Who, who could turn that down? Oh, well, I'm going to need a price check on this next item. Seems like it's up my alley. Ballad of the Anarchist Bandits, the crime spree that gripped Bellepoque Paris by John W. Merriman. First of all, it gripped 1911 Paris. So if that's the Bellepoque still, great. I oh, think we're okay. post Bellepoque. It's that old Bellepoque switcheroo. Exactly. Uh, and I should mention that beloved Patreon backer Ariel Celeste was with me. She is the proprietor and publisher of an anarchist press. And when I saw the book, she looked at it and she rolled her eyes. She visibly rolled her eyes and said, oh, another book about the Bonnot gang. And, you know, yes, it's another book about the Bonnot gang. I have a book called The Bonnot Gang that I got at Moe's earlier, earlier years. Um, this is another book about the Bonnet Gang. The Bonnet Gang is famous in the annals of crime, A, for being fun, charismatic anarchists, and B, for inventing the getaway car. Uh, they are the first crime syndicate to involve automobiles in their activities. And so between anarchism and uh, gearheadery, they hit that Venn diagram pretty strong. So is it relevant to Yellow King? Probably not. No, it is not. I just saved some money. Yay. <laughs> uh, but it's certainly relevant to pre-war anarchist gearheadery, which I think is another less explored territory, but one that is pregnant with role-playing fun. Speaking of getaway cars, Dillinger's Wild Ride, the year that made America's public enemy number one by Elliot J. Gorn. I've recently had a little spate of uh, comparing and contrasting different uh, Dillinger films, uh, which all, even the ones that have a, a veneer of historical accuracy, all play very fast and loose with the facts. But uh, this is a nonfiction book, so I guess it has to give you the actual facts. Yeah, uh, Gorn is uh, focusing on the year 1933 to 1934, the sort of big year that made him a public figure, uh, literally public enemy number one. It's after he breaks out of the Crown Point jail and begins his uh, sort of career across the headlines. Gorn is, you know, concerned with why did America fall in love with a thuggish bank robber? And the answer is America likes people who shoot cops. It's just a thing we do. And um, also, I do want to say this is what a 
sound peace policy looks like, because before the Cestus Three Accords, Robin, you would not have had a giant reptilian alien writing about John Dillinger, much less <laughs> observing the role of Hobbes bombs theories of social banditry. Okay. Somebody's getting punchy. Time for a little break, and then we'll be back with some more books. Delta Green Black Sites collects terrifying Delta Green operations previously published only in PDF or in standalone paperback modules. They lock bystanders and agents alike in unlit rooms with the cosmic terrors of the unnatural. By masters of top-secret mythos horror, Dennis Detweller, Adam Scott Glancy, Shane Ivey, and Caleb Stokes. In PX Poker Night, discontented Air Force members listen to the night sky and hear secrets not meant for human ears. In Kali Gotti, a Delta Green operative goes missing from a combat base in the Afghanistan war. The Last Equation, a gifted university student guns down a family of total strangers, leaving behind a string of numbers that fills Delta Green's researchers with dread. Lover in the Ice, a bitter Midwestern winter shuts down a city and awakens a threat that is all too ready to spread. Sweetness, vandalism of a family home twigs Delta Green to mythos danger. Hourglass, a woman vanishes screaming in front of dozens of witnesses in a small Oregon town. Ex oblivione, crazed words scrawled at a crime scene hint at Yohannath Lai and the sea. The child, a traumatized child looks to the agents for protection from voices that never cease. Delta Green Black Sights is a full-color 208-page hardback. Grab it now before it grabs you. And we're back. Ken has gotten the uh, Star Trek puns out of his system, I'm sure, <laughs> as we get to Crime Town USA, the history of the Mahoning Valley Mafia by Alan Armay. First of all, it's pronounced Crime Town USA. <laughs> I thought you were going to correct my pronunciation of Mahoning Valley. No, no. Mahon the Mahoning Valley, uh, for those who are not from uh, eastern Ohio, is where Youngstown, Ohio is. It was a big steel city back in the day, and where there is prosperity, there is organized crime, certainly in America in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, which is the era that this is mostly about. When you make fun illegal, you have organized crime. Exactly. That's just how it works. So this is one of the many, many, many regional mafia books that exist. I didn't have one for Youngstown. Now I do have one for Youngstown. I don't think that the book really gets as far down as the 60s. It probably has a, like an epilogue chapter or two, which even though, you know, it's just an epilogue chapter or two, that's still more than, you know, Wikipedia is going to have. So if I am uh, desperate in a fall of Delta Green game, why not go to Youngstown? The steel industry is still ticking along strong. Welcome to Crime Town. <laughs> Okay, well, I think our crime is about to go up a tax bracket as we get to Octopus, Sam Israel, The Secret Market, and Wall Street's Wildest Con by Guy Lawson. All right, I have not yet read this book. I just bought it. And the back of the book gave me enough information to know that I wanted to buy it while not actually telling me what the book was about. But here's what I've pieced together. <laughs> this guy, Sam Israel, was playing the market, was bad at it, had one last bit of you know money, a mere $150 million left, and either invented or stumbled upon, and this is where I'm not sure, a giant Ponzi scheme involving the secret stock market that only rich people know about. And he basically used his last stake to 
pretend to be in the secret stock market that only rich people know about to bilk bigger, richer people. And I was looking at it and I was saying, I don't know, financial crime, not super exciting. And I was thumbing through the book and a chapter heading was, I kid you not, Yamashita's gold, which is the conspiracy theory that the entire Japanese gold stock from World War II is hidden in a mountain in the Philippines somewhere and any number of ridiculous treasure hunts. It's the Oak Island of the Pacific, basically, uh, have been set up to pursue it. But the difference between it and Oak Island is that uh, leftists love it because it's all about American cooperation with Japanese war criminals. So Verso Books, of all people, have books about this nonsense. So I was, you know, I was on the bubble when I picked up Octopus and then I saw Yamashita's gold. It's like, I have, I don't care how this gets into the book. Now I have to own it. Right. So people who want to write books for Ken, that's your, that's your tell on how that's to get them to buy your book and exactly. mention it on, on the podcast. Next, we come to uh, Matthew Bogdanos, Thieves of Baghdad. Yeah, this is a book. Matthew Bogdanos was in the Marines. He was part of the team that went into Baghdad relatively early uh, in the war and either on his own hook or because he got transferred into the unit, became concerned with the uh, looting of the antiquities from the museums and set about tracing them. So this is sort of a guy who was, you know, one of the occupiers of Baghdad trying to track down the art thefts that, you know, blew up as a result of all the security guards running away. So the book is a, you know, combination war memoir and art theft book. I'm not necessarily sure, you know, how much of the Baghdad Museum it talks about. It talks about the treasures of Nippur, I think, are, are its centerpiece. But there was a lot more stuff in the museum than just that. But this is one story, and it is, again, super relevant for, you know, modern-day espionage, Knights Black Agency-type games. Yeah, if you can't come up with uh, plot hooks out of this, uh, you've stumbled across the wrong podcast. Mm-hmm. Next, we come to Zero 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 by Roberto Saviano. Now the basis of a TV show, I believe. Uh, this is Saviano talking about the cocaine trade in Italy. He's the author of Gamora, which was about the um, Camara in Naples, so he knows his stuff. And this is just specifically about the cocaine market and uh, how it works, or how it worked at the time that he wrote the book. Again, absolute rock foundational uh, Knights Black Agents type material. You you hardly have to explain why you'd want a book about the cocaine trade. And Saviano is actually a really good reporter and researcher, and he really knows his stuff. Next, we come to Cosmopolis, The Hidden Agenda of Modernity by Stephen Toulman. And this sounds like it's more exciting than it is. It is not. Modernity doesn't have a hidden agenda, Ken? Well, you know, I don't know that it's that hidden because... Because abstract concepts have all kinds of hidden agendas. And it's also not hidden. The agenda is... Descartian rationalism, the notion that you can order society. Well, guess what? <laughs> that's not a hidden agenda. That's just Might be a doomed agenda. Well, it's absolutely a doomed agenda, but it's not hidden. Whatever else is wrong with it. So, uh, Toulman, I, I have no idea if the publisher did that to him. He's a, a history of philosophy guy. And I picked it up in fairness. I picked it up because of the subtitle. So well done, uh, subtitle man. But it looked like an interesting sort of, basically, like I said, study of the effect of Cartesian rationalism on mostly uh, Western political philosophy, but also on Western philosophy in general. So, you know, short, which is another good thing about a book about philosophy. Right. So that's basically like introduction to macroeconomics, the Da Vinci Code of Numbers. Exactly. Right. You know, um, the Bible Code. This is just a book about understanding Hebrew. Yes, it is. (laughs) Uh, next, we come to Humboldt's Cosmos by Gerard Helfrich. 
Yeah, this is a uh, story about Alexander Humboldt and his voyage of uh, biological exploration to South America uh, around the turn of the 19th century. And it's, you know, Humboldt not only, you know, did huge amounts of contributions to biological science, he was also a relatively early superstar of science in the early modern period or in the modern era. And he is the guy who basically... When he got back to Germany with his giant boatload of, of specimens, they were so excited and they had no way of teaching biology because the German universities had all been set up by the church back in the Middle Ages. They said, Humboldt, start a new university and show us how to teach modern stuff. And that is the model for virtually every university in America is Humboldt's university. So this trip to South America to look at butterflies or whatever basically rewrote the way that we thought about everything for 200 years. So it's a super understudied moment in intellectual history. And Rick Dakin, who I was with at Parker's books in Sarasota said, Oh, that's a really good book. And uh, Rick is a smart guy. So the in into the pilot went. Now, some people may have observed that this is a geeky podcast. that doesn't talk much about trains. So here's two minutes on trains, starting with blood, iron and gold. How the Railways Transformed the World by Christian Volmar. Uh, it's not actually about trains. It's about railroads. I don't know if Volmar what, is going to... What goes on railroads, Ken? Trains. Work with me here. Well, more importantly, Robin, flows of investment and resources go on railroads. And that is what Christian Volmar is interested in. Oh, no. Is this like a really boring German game? Uh, it's not unlike a boring German game, but it is about, you know, worker placement and resource management. And it's about how... The capacity to do that suddenly means California goes from land of cowboys to land of Hollywood in less than a human lifetime. And now Canada goes from a bunch of British colonies to a country, basically overnight, and all the other ways that we're uh, really big on the trains made our country theory up here. Well, you know, when you when you are in a country that expands all the way across a big unlivable continent, yeah. turns out. That's what you think. One thing about Canada, it's it's long. It's long. <laughs> it goes a ways across. Okay, well, I think you deliberately put that bait and switch in there for me, just as a transition, as we now get to the weirdo part. And uh, that starts with New Atlantis Revisited, Akademgorok, the Soviet City of Science, by Paul R. Josephson. And uh, if I pronounce that wrong, it's a new policy of, uh, as a protest against the war in Ukraine, mispronouncing uh, Russian names and not my usual policy of just not knowing how to pronounce them. Right. Uh, this is not weirdness. Uh, the New Atlantis title, uh, once more, sucked me in like a fish. But the argument is that when, when the Soviets built Akadem Gorodok, they were building it consciously based on Bacon's Utopia and uh, his book, The New Atlantis. And I don't think that was true. I don't think any Soviet ever cared what Francis Bacon thought, but that's what Paul Josephson's takeaway is. But it really is a, how did a Soviet science city function? And given the number of closed science cities, the fact that we have some fairly detailed records of this relatively open science city gives you all manner of possibilities for Cold War gaming and Fall of Delta Green, especially, as well as being, you know, another urban history from an uh, sort of urbanity that I don't often look at. And of course, yes, it says New Atlantis. So if I want to pretend that uh, the Soviets actually had a secret Rosicrucian Corps that was building their science cities, well, now I have ammo for that. Well, with two 
doses of cold water in a row, I'm just not going to get excited about Welcome to Mars, Politics, Pop Culture, and Weird Science in 1950s America by Ken Holland. Yeah, this is basically about the pop culture part of this equation. The <laughs> notion, yep, there we go. The notion is that in 1950s America, uh, we have a vast popularization of science uh, created basically by the war and the space program. And that this popularization then, as everything does, uh, feeds into fringe nonsense. And that this fringe nonsense then filters back into pop culture and politics. And that's where Ken Hollings is taking the argument. So this is not a book of craziness. It's not even, I think, a first order book about craziness. It's a book about things that craziness eventually did. So, you know, again, short, looks like it's well put together and it, you know, a book with invaders from Mars on the cover. It can't be a bad book, can it? Really? It can't possibly, but, but not as weird as weird science would, would imply. Right. So surely, Following this trend, this next book must be about the inventors of the slide rule because it's called The Wizard and the Prophet, Two Remarkable Scientists and Their Dueling Visions to Shape Tomorrow's World by Charles C. Mann. Yeah, Charles Mann is the author of 1491 and the 1493, the amazing books about the Columbian Exchange and uh, sort of the, you know, life and economy of North America before Columbus. So this is his, you know, look forward in a way as he talks about uh, in contrasts Plutarch style, uh, William Vogt, who was one of the founders of uh, modern environmentalism. Uh, the notion that the planet has a carrying capacity. I think Vogt is part of the club of Rome guys. And then the other side of this is Norman Borlaug, the man who has saved more human lives than any other person on the face of the earth because he invented various high yield green crops that uh, made it possible to not die of vitamin deficiencies and not starve to death in general, so that suddenly India becomes a net exporter of food, which it hasn't been since the invasion of the hated British. So once you have those two sides, do we grow our way out of it or cut our way back? That's the dialogue and the dilemma that man is talking about. And again, based almost entirely on how great 1491 and 1493 were, I, I picked this book up. So I guess I'm just going to have to resign to everything on this list being a straightforward history that is, you know, less exciting than the keywords in the titles. The Murder of Moses, How an Egyptian Magician Assassinated Moses, Stole His Identity, and Hijacked the Exodus by Rand and Rose Flemath. Yes, and if you are familiar with the career of uh, Colin Wilson, you know that Rand Flemath is the Atlantologist who latched on to Colin Wilson in The Great Man's Dotage and caused a number of Atlantis books to come out with Colin Wilson's name on them. And this is him and his uh, no doubt lovely and charming wife, Rose, putting together, you think Jesus having a kid was cool? Wait till you get to the murder of Moses. Uh, apparently, there was a anti-Semitic uh, argument made around the time of Josephus that, you know, Judaism doesn't count. It's not a real thing. We can extirpate it because even their founding prophet wasn't really a thing. It was just an Egyptian magician who led them all astray. And once we, you know, fix it, they'll, they'll fall back and become good citizens of Rome. And this thesis, as I mentioned, originally come up with to support Roman genocide is back on the front pages. Thanks to Rand and Rose Flemath. Um, this is pure woo, Robin. You'll be gratified to know. 
And that was the last time that a bent historical argument was ever used to justify an atrocity. Now uh, we come to Lost Secrets of the Sacred Ark by Lawrence Gardner. Lawrence Gardner, another one of those authors that when you see him, you simultaneously thrill with joy and shiver with irritation. Lawrence Gardner wrote a series of meretricious books about King Arthur in which he managed to tie King Arthur not just to the Holy Grail, as a child of two can do, but basically made up his own versions of medieval Welsh history. There's a book that he has called Rise of the Ring Lords, which tries to connect King Arthur and uh, the Grail to the Lord of the Rings and imply that Tolkien was somehow channeling this ancient knowledge. And the terrifying thing is that you'll see real books about King Arthur now, and they'll footnote Lawrence Gardner without the words, is a raving crazy person in them. <laughs> But, you know, at some point, even the well of King Arthur must run dry and uh, a grifter has to move on. And this is Lawrence Gardner taking on the Ark of the Covenant. And I do not know where he hid the, the, the Ark this time. If it's down to standard behavior, I'm guessing it'll turn up in Wales. But who can say? Uh, just really, this is a matter where you, you've got a, a master of his craft has, has built a dark ride buy the ticket and get in. Well, given his place on the list, then I'm excited to know what the ghost rockets by Michael Hanks is all about. This is about a phenomenon. I was hoping it was just about the sightings of the ghost rockets in the immediate post-war era in Sweden. The notion that there's these rockets that were firing across the skies of Sweden and the Swedes would call up America and say, stop firing rockets. And we would say, we did not fire any rockets. Then they'd call Russia and say, stop firing rockets. And the Russians would say, we fired no rockets. And of course, since neither America nor Russia would lie about rockets in 1947, Robin, it must have been <laughs> they were, UFOs. They were ghosts, clearly. It must have been UFOs. Well, they're not ghost rockets. They're UFO rockets. Right. But apparently, there's been lots of people who have cited unexplained or, what do I want to say, unpublicly explained uh, rockets since 1947. So, Hanks's book talks about more of those than just the Swedish case that is the, the sort of the... Uh, uh, what do they call the, the original specimen, the, the species specimen of the ghost rocket? So it's all about phantom rocket sightings and whether or not they were really a missile test that no one was telling you. And uh, still in the, the UFO zone, Secret Mars, the Alien Connection, revised and expanded edition by M.J. Craig. I feel like at some point I don't have to justify buying a book. It's... <laughs> Yeah, this isn't Ken justifies his purchases. It's no. Ken describes them. Yeah. Well, in this case, I will describe it by saying, yeah, uh, there's not a lot of margins on that back cover. I'm going to say that the revised expanded edition takes in the Curiosity Rover and all the weird stuff it's seen, photographs the sort of um, xenoarchaeology thing that goes all the way back to Mariner. And then, of course, the face on Mars is the classic, beloved, best xenoarchaeology. This is more of those. We've had... You know, 30 years of blurry or even pretty good photographs of Mars since then. Some of them look like Elvis. Some of We've them look like pyramids. Cool little cars up there to take pictures of pareidolia. So now's the time. Right. I mean, this is just classic secret Mars. It's good old. What's better than a face? A lumpy rock that looks like a face. That's what I say, Robin. Right. And that's what uh, MJ Craig says, too. And, and finally, to conclude this epic two-part, four-segment uh, book haul. It has the word scientific in it, so it must be reliable. Exogenesis, Hybrid Humans, A Scientific History of Extraterrestrial Genetic Manipulation by Bruce R. Fenton and Daniela Fenton. This is 
you know, I often complain, Robin, as you know, and as you've heard me say. I, I do know that you often complain. I yes. do often complain, but I specifically often complain that most of these books are just people rearranging each other's research, that no one has a really good, cool new idea. Well, this book, it may not be the first book on this topic, but it's the first that I've found that is saying, well, if there were ancient aliens, if there were ancient astronauts, if there were UFO crashes, if there were all these things, they must have left genetic traces in the human genome. So I feel like this is someone who's at least making the effort to look at a different aspect of blurry stuff on a computer that is actually a data error. So the, the ancient astronauts had to have gotten down with us. Exactly. What, what I'm hearing. And so this, I think, maybe began as a basic UFO book. And then someone said, hey, let's let's do a, a cool book on alien hybrids. Or it may have begun on the alien hybrid book. And someone said, UFOs are hot again. Put in a thing about the Nimitz sighting. But mostly, it's good enough for uh, showbiz genetic balderdash to support the good enough for showbiz aerodynamic balderdash that we're all tired of. And so I'm, I'm just excited that we're going to... The word haplogroup is probably going to be used in all manner of bad ways. I, I can't be uh, more thrilled than to find out about the genetic engineering of uh, dwarves on flories and how that explains UFO craft inhabitants at Roswell. I'm I'm here for it. Right. Well, with this many books, there's just not even any time for a proper segue. So see you next week. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphagown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Help this podcast lock into its new proud future, which is much like the old proud future, by joining such backers as... Drew Clawry. Alexander Zimmerman. Carl Schmidt. Louis Sylvester. And Luke Sylvester. Burn. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Enjoy such classics as Nod Knowingly If You're a Tulpa. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. Stuff.